listening to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host, Tip Top Tim Fitch. Yeah. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. You're watching the Construction Big Breakfast. Um, I'm Sarah Hall, communications consultant at Invent. Today, we have our director, Tim Fitch, and Jason Le Mazurier. Um, here as our guest. Um, we're really excited for you to join us and thank you so much for all the recent subscriptions and uh, we're going to dive right in. Uh, Tim, how are you doing today? Jason? Great. Hi Sarah, hi Jason. Well I'm obviously tip top because we're filming this on a Friday uh, just before the bank holiday uh, at the end of August so uh, looking forward to the weekend although the weather looks a bit rubbish. You'll know <laughs> this by the time it's gone out. Um, and uh, yeah, really, really excited to have uh, Jason on the podcast this morning because uh, he's got a very interesting story to tell and he's doing some very interesting stuff just now, which is what we're going to talk about. But those of you that are regular listeners will know that the first question that any of our guests ever get asked is, well, Jason, today, what did you have for breakfast? I had my usual big bowl of porridge. I always have a big breakfast and I add all sorts of other things to it, uh, berries and bananas and so it's a great big bowl of, it's my main meal of the day I suppose, my big breakfast. Yeah um, and I'm interested, how long does that keep you going? How long, keep, how long does that keep you going? Oh brilliant because you know uh, oats are quite a, a slow release carbohydrate so they get me going all day and if I have a good breakfast in the morning I can go through it all the evening without really needing much so uh, no, it's a good way to start the day. I'd recommend it to anyone. Big bowl of porridge. <laughs> no, it's very healthy, good for cholesterol. Yeah, very yes. good. Yes. Come on, Sarah, what do you have? Um, I'm on my second cup of coffee and I had a smoothie, although I'm sure Tim would have preferred me to be eating some pancakes and maple syrup this morning. <laughs> but I'll yes. save that for next week when I'm in Canada. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim, well, that's good. Yeah. Well, what you well uh, if you look on Facebook, you'll see what I had because... Uh, I, I've got into um, making, uh, we had some, uh, what, what do you call them, wraps left over, so wraps, I had some tomato, fresh, no, tin tomatoes, which I've flavoured up with some chilli and whatever, and two fried eggs on top. So uh, that was a good 400 calories. And <laughs> I, if I don't have something like that, I run out of steam by about half past 11. And for me, porridge, that's exactly what happens if I have porridge. I get to about half eleven, and then the, the carbohydrate's gone. But anyway, everyone's got slightly different metabolisms, haven't they? So anyway, yeah. that's enough about breakfast. If you want to have a look at my breakfast, go have a look on uh, Facebook. Yeah, the, weather, so, the weather's not looking too bad up here in Donegal at the moment. You know, you course. said the bank holiday's not looking too good, but the uh, weather's up here in Donegal is pretty good. Well, is the good? sun shines on the righteous. Uh, so that's that's interesting so Jason's speaking to us from Donegal uh, but that's obviously not where you originally hail from and uh, you've got a you've got a very interesting backstory um, big big journey in the last 10 or 12 years could you for the benefit of uh, our viewers just give a very brief overview of what happened well, what happened was uh, it was a kite surfing accident. I was lifted up there about 20 feet and then landed on my head on the sand at Blackpool Beach. Now, how on earth I survived that is a miracle to start with. That uh, The mayor ambulance then took me to hospital. And when I got to hospital, 
I scored three out of 15 on the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is as low as you can go without being dead, really. Um, so I was that close. Yes. And uh, that at that level, there's a 95% mortality rate. So, you know, I'm just so lucky to be here. And uh, then after following that, I spent two and a half years in hospital. And just before I left hospital, the doctor, my consultant, told me that they tried their best, but they couldn't get me walking. And he said, you're never going to walk again. So that was like a red rag to a bull as far as I was concerned. It was like a challenge, you know, he set yeah. me a challenge. Yeah. And then a month later, I was having races with my son. My son was um, 14 months old at that time. And we were both trying to walk at the same time. So we were having races uh, together to um, to be first to learn to walk. Wow. <laughs> There's not many people that could say they learned to walk with their son. No, that's astonishing. And of course, your son was conceived just before this accident. That's right. Yeah, yeah. My wife was three months pregnant by the time of the accident. So what she went through was just unbe unbelievable, you know, to go through six months of pregnancy with me, you know, it was a real roller coaster, um, you know, on the verge of death a few times on that way. And I don't know how on earth Liz survived that. And then once I'd come through that bit and learned to walk, she then had to, she was a single parent with Jack while I carried on in the hospital with my rehab for another, another 18 months. So, uh, it was um, a very difficult time for Liz and, you know, she, we both came through it and we're doing great now. After I'd, I'd say, after I'd done the very unusual thing of learning to walk with my son, my next goal was to walk down the aisle at our wedding. Cause we, were getting, we would have been married before my accident if, you know, everything had gone okay, but uh, we got married afterwards. And then when it came to the wedding, I did another very, very unusual thing. I actually ran down the aisle away from Liz. <laughs> So uh, I've got a video of me um, running down the aisle into the arms of another woman. <laughs> pretty unusual thing to do in a in a wedding, I think. <laughs> but considering what happened, it was a big, it was a big, big statement, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I was I was doing it to prove for everyone there, my family and everyone, that uh, I was back, not just walking, yeah. but I was able to run at that stage. So, well, yeah. jog anyway. So uh, that was a great thing. Sounds like you and Liz went through a lot, and she must be a very resilient woman to have gone oh, through all this as well. She is incredible. She's, you know, if I wouldn't be here without her, definitely. And um, yeah, but um, it was just a series of, of then goals. You know, my first goal was to learn to walk before my son. My second goal was to walk down the aisle on a wedding day. Then the next goal was to learn to ride a bike and swim again. <clears throat> and then once I got running, riding the bike and swimming, mm -hmm. I said, well, why not put it all together and do a triathlon as you would, you know, what else would you, <laughs> why not? So um, Liz and I entered the Skipton triathlon together and I can't wow. tell you the satisfaction we had going back to the doctor who told me I'd never walk again four years before. And ask him to sponsor me to do a triathlon. That's <laughs> what was his reaction? Incredible. What was his reaction? Well, he's like, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I said to him, look, please don't ever take anyone else's hope away. You know, just yeah. You know, 
expect you know you never know what's possible and i said well unless it was inverse inverse psychology i said you may have just been winding me up to see what i could do but i certainly uh, did rise to the challenge you set me and uh, this is where i am today so yeah. he, he did sponsor me in the end actually well that's nice <laughs> there are people without accidents who can't do triathlons so i mean <laughs> i'm well, one of them never <laughs> that's astonishing well on well done i've gone on to, to run marathons i've run the dublin marathon as well now and uh, I mean, this is a, one of the key things about my workshop is um, <clears throat> TIC, stands for Thrive in Crisis. Yeah. So although I was, I was a pretty fit guy before my accident, obviously I was kite surfing and things, um, mm -hmm. but I'd never really done much running. So the accident basically brought this out. You know, I actually managed to thrive. You know, I had this major crisis on my hands, but yeah. I managed to come through it and actually do even better in terms of physical fitness and uh, and now fitter than I ever was. Let's just go back a step because you just mentioned something you're doing now. Um, yes. So you've had this tremendous uh, period of recovery and rehabilitation and you've obviously uh, physically, you're, you're beyond where you were before the accident in terms of being able to run triathlons and marathons and things like that. Yes. But you, what is it that you're, you, you've, before the accident, you were yes. involved in uh, civil engineering and uh, you're an academic, if I, if I remember correctly. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I was, um, at the time of my accident, I was actually <clears throat> working at Canterbury University in New Zealand as a lecturer in construction management. Now, that, that had come out of my PhD, which is on management in construction. And obviously, the next, once I'd got my PhD in management and construction and I managed to get the post there in New Zealand and it was an incredible job I love New Zealand um, but the accident was back here and I was back on the sabbatical in the UK and basically the accident really cut me off from New Zealand then which is mm. you know one of the bad things about it all but um, there's a lot more there's a lot worse things about it but um, no I mean I'm lucky as I say I'm lucky to be here so making the most of all the uh, things I've lived you know I've survived with and Trying to do something better than I did before, and we just just dwell on this a little bit because uh, you know, obviously I know the answer to this question. You, you're the PhD when you said it was in construction management. It, it was focusing on uh, developing the observational method to look at other forms of risk other than ground movement. Exactly. Yes. Yes. So uh, the observational method has been used for many years very successfully in the construction industry. Uh, originally uh, put forward as by Ralph Peck, Tazagi and Peck used the observational method very successfully on many projects, and it was the way that they always worked. Um, and it had been used, another, you know, all around the world, um, but not so much. And one of the things that Peck said was that um, there are two ways the observational method is used, and he called it ab initio, which basically means, which is the way he and Tazagi used it, which was from the start. Ab initio means from the start and actually seeing that that was the best way of achieving the cheapest and most efficient construction in, you know, in, in ground conditions, you never know what you're going to find. And we all know that uh, it's the ground conditions that often throw a span in the work and um, you come across things that you never expected. And so yeah, the uh, observational method manages the risk and the uncertainty and gives you the best outcome. And 
the other way, he, he just so he said ab initio is one way. The second way is called best way out, which is the way it has been used a lot because it's, you know, sometimes you end up in such a state, you know, with the with the problems with, you know, unforeseen ground conditions we all know about. So um, that's where it's come into its own, really, in terms of it's the only way forward once you've had a <clears throat> a disaster in the construction site. And um, sorry, if I can go on a bit here, um, yeah. the I'd say the biggest example of its use in the UK, um, the most successful example, was on the recovery works for the Heathrow Express tunnel at Heathrow when when they were building the uh, the tunnels for Heathrow Express. They were using um, sprayed concrete linings, so Natam basically. Um, but uh, because of the culture on the project, there were some problems with it and the tunnels collapsed and the way they actually resolved the problem immediately was to pump the ground full of concrete to stop the tunnels collapsing anymore. So in a way they they created a bigger crisis for themselves because they, the collapse of the tunnels was bad enough but then filling the ground up with concrete created a you know a much more challenging situation. But the the secret to getting out of it was the observational method. They ended up with this big excavation that was full of concrete <clears throat> and the only way to remedy it at the time was to build a co big coffer dam around the the whole collapsed area and then dig it out. And um, the observational method was used very effectively to manage the, the movements and the uncertainty in that process. Um, so if I can go on a bit more about the Heathrow Express, which is probably very relevant because it's, you know, that's where the origins of observational method from, which I've gone on to develop further. But anyway, <clears throat> the <clears throat> HSE did their um, investigations into the collapse. And one of the key findings of the investigations was that although the ground conditions were very uncertain, it was the culture and the lack of communication and you know the, the lack of collaboration in a way between the parties that really caused the disaster. <clears throat> so um, what I what I was this, this was in my case study of my in my main case study in my PhD was on the um, Heathrow Express and at the time uh, Sir Alan Muir Wood was involved in my PhD as an industrial partner and he said to me that whenever you've got a complex project with a lot of yeah a lot of complexity he said that one of the the big the, the bigger un uncertainty the bigger complexity is the culture of the people involved in that because at that time i think if anyone can remember back to there that <clears throat> the um construction industry was was very adversarial um you know between particularly between the uh the designers and the contractors and you know the clients and it was you know a lot of um conflict between the parties i mean these days we've got a bit better with the uh, new engineering contract and more collaborative arrangements like partnering and alliancing <clears throat> which have improved that whole cultural issue in a way but um at the time i thought to myself well <clears throat> If we're applying the observational method to manage the uncertainty in the ground, then is it possible to apply 
apply the same technique, the observational method, to managing the uncertainty in the human behavior in the team, because that's the bigger that's the bigger uncertainty. Yeah. So I then thinking about this, I thought, well, the observational method is really just a generic approach to managing uncertainty. And this is this is my PhD, which is the title is developing the observational method as a systemic approach to uncertainty management. Because I like to use the way the word uncertainty rather than risk, right? Because uncertainty contains both risk and also opportunity. Mm. So if you manage uncertainty well, you not only minimize the risk, but you also maximize the opportunity. That's a very good point. So I mean, you're talking to a, a, a person who studied soil mechanics and uh, I actually very briefly, I know you knew him well, met Ralph Peck when he was in his 90s, one of his visits to London. Um, and of course, uh, vicariously, I was happened to be sat in one of Balfour Beatty's offices in southern England the day that collapse happened. And if you ever want to see, uh, what shall I say, pandemonium break out uh, in an organisation, that was a pretty good example of it, understandably. <laughs> There's no criticism there. Um, so you've got this, these two, we've, we've heard what you're doing before, academic, construction management, PhD, applying the observational method to uh, more generic uh, management of uncertainty. Now this terrible accident, the journey through rehabilitation and uh, you know, reaching new physical peaks. And, but what, how have those two things come together? What is it you're doing now, Jason, to uh, say, uh, capitalize on it, but to um, create something out of those two very different strands to your life. Yes. To inspire and help others, right? Exactly, yes, yeah. But uh, conveniently, they, they merged together. The two biggest challenges I've had in my life have been my recovery from accident and also my PhD. And I've managed to merge the two and come in up with a um, a process which I've developed into a workshop and I, I do uh, speaking now. I do, uh, well, I'm a member of the Professional Speaking Association, which is basically people who make their living out of speaking. So uh, I speak on this subject and the way I've merged it together, the PhD and the PhD and the recovery is the fact that I had a major crisis with my accident. And there was a lot of uncertainty about how I would come out of it. And I was able to thrive in my crisis, as I've described before. Um, and I just mentioned there that uh, Winston Churchill is famously quoted as saying, never let a good crisis go to waste. So this is the this is the idea behind, you know, trying to do something positive with what I've gone through and what, you know, that something that will benefit other people. So the first part is thrive in crisis, tick, I call it tick. And that's based on this idea of it's resilience, really. How do you actually use a crisis to your benefit rather than be defeated by it? Um, I, I describe um, the difference between a crisis and a catastrophe is the same as the difference between trauma and death. 
for my, you know, my situation, I had a very traumatic accident. If I died, it would have been a catastrophe. Right. But it became, it was just, it was a crisis, a major crisis. And so, as I said before, wherever you've got a crisis, you've got risk, but also opportunity. So um, what I then did was I said, well, the observational method is about observing what's happening and responding appropriately to that. And I've summarized that as um, take opportunities consciously, which is when you've got a crisis, as I said, you've got a lot of and risk, but also a lot of opportunities. And so to take take the opportunities consciously is about observing, you know, all the data that's coming to you and everything that uh, influences your decisions and then acting appropriately based on what you've observed, what you've discovered. Um, the, that's, that's talk. And the third part is I call it clock. And that's based on another part of the observation which is about contingencies so contingencies cover the worst possible scenario you know when you've uh, when you're dealing with ground conditions uh you know it could be any number of kind of you know dewatering um situations or as they did on the um westminster box for the underground they, they used um tube on ship underneath the Big Ben. So if Big Ben started to lean a bit, they'd pump some ground into the ground and push it back into place. So that, that was their contingency, was a way of preventing settlement that might have caused Big, Big Ben to start leaning. So this idea of clock, contingencies let opportunities commence, is the fact that once you've got the, the worst case situation covered with the contingencies, that kind of frees up your mind a bit. You think, well, you know, that's that's as bad as it could be. And I've got something in place that will cater for that. But if you, <laughs> then, so that frees up your mind and you think, well, what are the opportunities then? I've got the risk, I've got the, the bad thing covered. So I'll start looking for the opportunities. And so we've got tick, tock, clock. And I say that um, in order to, to tick, thrive in the crisis, you've got to talk, which is take opportunities consciously. And in order to talk, you've got to have contingency in place, which is clock. Right. To tick, you need to talk. To talk, you need to clock. <laughs> tick, talk, clock. I love it. <laughs> so you've created this sort of framework, and uh, as we we and you 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 run workshops to help people explore this yes yes have you been running those workshops during this world crisis that we have going on right now too i mean well, yes. we're in such a huge crisis around the world it's a it seems like a good opportunity to be teaching that to people and how they could make this into some kind of an opportunity exactly yes that's my main focus now and uh you know, this provided this is providing me with a great opportunity yeah. and there's a there's a saying i heard once that um the opportunity of a lifetime lasts for the lifetime of the opportunity. As in, this is my opportunity of a lifetime to, to actually do something useful, positive with what has happened to me and help other people. But the wind of opportunity is is there for as long as, as, long as the crisis is there. So, uh, you know, this is this is what I'm aiming at. And 
I think my model can help other people see a way through this and not be defeated by the crisis. Like I could have been defeated by accident, but to actually be, I'd say resilience is about not only surviving, but actually thriving, actually using it to your benefit and actually go forward with something else. And I've heard the saying bounce forward, you know, if you bounce, like I bounced on my head, right. use the momentum to take you forward rather than bouncing back, just saying, oh, well, I'll go back to where I was before. And I think this, this crisis that we're going through at the moment is actually going to, in some ways, is going to improve the world because it, I mean, certainly on the environmental side, it's uh, potentially going to make a big impact on the climate change and the um, all the environmental problems we've got because, mm-hmm. you know, as we all know that a lot of the airlines are going under, so mm-hmm. we're going to stop a lot of air travel. Um, and also, you know, it's all sorts of ways that if people can be positive, they can actually say, what are we going to get out of this? What can we do that's better than we did before? So yeah, uh, that's, uh, another, I think another good example of that is um, Christchurch in New Zealand, which, as you know, had a major earthquake, <clears throat> but um, they're very resilient. I think the, the Kiwis tend to be very resilient people, and they're actually now making Christchurch into an even better city, a smart city. It's, uh, it's sort of rising out of the ashes to be better than before. And just coincidentally, when I was working in, in Canterbury University, my rain research area was on post-disaster reconstruction, which is a bit ironic, but yeah, um, exactly. yes, and uh, yeah, that was particularly focused on <clears throat> the contractual situation after a major disaster. When it comes to rebuilding, we were saying that the best way to rebuild when you've got a huge amount of uncertainty and confusion is using an alliance, you know, a construction alliance. And from the contractual point of view, is the best way of dealing with that kind of major situation. And um, so this is, you know, this is another thing that I'm bringing into my workshop is the fact that you know, resilience is about uh, coming back better. And example, you know, Christchurch is one of the best examples of that. And Heathrow Express as well. So you know, mm-hmm. the uh, the two areas of two major disasters in the construction industry and in New Zealand are coming into my workshop and this is you know it's all backing up what I'm having to say and that um, you know it's not just my ideas is actually proven you know in, in reality Heathrow Express has proven how effective the observational method is and Christchurch is showing how resilience helps you do better than you did before. Mm-hmm. And I, I, we speak as we find because uh, you know, Jason uh, very uh, kindly ran one of these workshops virtually uh, with the invent team um, just before we all broke up for summer and uh, he combined it with uh, sort of a, an inspirational talk which means a lot more detail about uh, not only the accident but the, the long road to uh, rehabilitation recovery followed by the TikTok clock workshop all done virtually and I know from my own team's feedback on my own, you know, what I think and what the team thinks, it was a, it was a, a profound uh, event. And of course, people are still thinking about the TikTok clock model. And uh, it, talking about disaster recovery, I mean, one of one of our teams, Sarah, was in Beirut when that explosion happened three or four weeks ago. Yeah. 
uh, and there's a city that needs to be rebuilt. And uh, obviously, they're in the actual very early days of. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. It was a catastrophe for some people. It's absolutely a, a monumental disaster. But uh, it would be, be interesting to see whether the Lebanese can uh, respond to it, perhaps in the same you know, is as well as Christchurch. Right. Uh, time yes. will tell. Time will tell, won't it? Yeah. On the workshop. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the, that, that's that's our experience uh, of Jason's workshop. It's uh, I thoroughly recommend it. It's thought provoking. It's moving, obviously, with the story, uh, mm -hmm. and it's an interesting model which is very very relevant, not just for COVID, but for things like Beirut. So, uh, Jason, if anyone who's watching this would like to get in contact with you. What are the best ways of uh, for them reaching out? Well, my email is quite simple, jasonlemazurier at gmail.com. I also have a website, which is jasonlemazurier.com. I'm on all the usual social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, I can be contacted through any of these. And um, the website's under development at at the moment so uh, that's going to be improving and incorporating more on the TikTok clock workshop which is going to be rolled out into a you know a program of workshops that I can deliver to people who are trying to survive in the, the crisis that we've you know that we're all going through at the moment mm -hmm. and also I think maybe the Brexit crisis which might well, have been yes yeah. yes <laughs> well what so. we'll do uh, I'm a Sarah Knows how to do all this. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll put everything on the screen there, and then there'll also be a link in the description box below. Um, I want to also thank you very much for coming on today, Jason. That was really inspiring to hear your story firsthand um, and hear how you've come out of it. Um, and I want to thank everybody who's watching. Um, we really appreciate all your subscriptions. If you've enjoyed hearing Jason's story and you'd like to share it with somebody who could gain some insight from it, please share this video on. Um, on any social media platform. It's going to be airing on iTunes and our YouTube channel. And we'd appreciate it if you give the video a like or comment what your thoughts are, any feedback that you have, and, um, and subscribe to our channel. Thanks so much for watching. Thanks. See you next time, everyone. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.